This is Guns and Butter. For a thousand years prior to the Renaissance, the faith of the great majority of Europeans was Christian. In the modern world, however, one's loyalty and one's identity came to be identified by geography rather than by religion. Virtue was redefined as patriotism. Saints were replaced by national heroes. Being a Christian became optional. Public debates for and against Christianity are fully acceptable. But there is no public debate about national loyalty. In short, the dominant faith of most people in the modern world has been nationalist. What is the American form of this nationalistic faith? It is that the United States is a fundamentally virtuous nation. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's show, 9-11 and nationalist faith. David Ray Griffin is a prolific author, theologian, and lecturer. For the past several years, he has committed himself to exposing the fraud of the official story of the attacks of September 11th. Dr. Griffin provides multiple evidence to demonstrate that the official explanation is not credible. He shows that the greatest obstacle to seeing the truth, that 9-11 was an inside job, is not the lack of evidence, but what can be called nationalist faith, the belief that America is the exceptional nation, whose leaders never deliberately do anything truly evil, at least to their own citizens. Today's presentation on his research into the attacks of September 11th was before a predominantly Christian audience. Dr. Griffin describes nationalism as the modern-day faith. It is often said that Christian faith is the dominant faith in America. It is also often said that faith is a bad thing, which prevents religious people from determining the answers to various vital questions on the basis of the relevant evidence. Faith, in other words, is regarded as not only blind, but blinding. The truth about America, however, is more complex. Another kind of faith, radically different from Christian faith, is actually the dominant faith in our country. Even within the church, Christian faith tends to be subordinate to this other form of faith. With regard to certain truths, moreover, While Christian faith at its best is illuminating, this other form of faith is blinding. One of these truths is the truth about 9-11. The evidence that 9-11 was an inside job, I said at the outset of my book, Debunking 9-11 Debunking, is overwhelming. Most people who examine this evidence with an open mind find it convincing. The only problem is to get people to actually examine this evidence with, at least in Richard Falk's phrase, even just a 30% open mind. Why is it so difficult for so many people, including journalists, seriously to examine the evidence? There are many reasons, especially when we are talking about journalists. But one of those reasons, probably the most important, I will suggest, is the blinding power of the dominant faith of Americans. I will then suggest that Christian faith at its best opens us to the truth about 9-11 by allowing us to look at the evidence without flinching. 
Christian faith is not necessary, of course. Many members of the 9-11 truth movement are not Christians. But it can help, partly because it contains warnings against the kind of faith that makes it difficult for many Americans, and America as such, to see the truth about 9-11. What is this truth? It is, I have already suggested, that 9-11 was an inside job orchestrated by forces within our own government. It was a false flag attack with evidence planted to make it appear to have been planned and carried out by Arab Muslims. The expression false flag attack originally referred to operations in which the attackers, perhaps in ships, literally showed the flag of an enemy country so that it would be blamed. But the expression has come to be used for any kind of attack made to appear to be the work of some group or country other than that to which the attackers themselves belong. Imperial powers have regularly staged such attacks when they wanted a pretext to go to war. When Japan's army in 1931 decided to take Manchuria, it blew up tracks in its own railway near the Chinese military base at Mukden, then blamed Chinese soldiers, then proceeded to slaughter hundreds of thousands of Chinese. This Mukden incident began the Pacific part of World War II. In Germany in 1933, the Nazis, wanting a pretext to arrest leftists, shut down unfriendly newspapers and annulled civil rights, started a fire in the German Reichstag and blamed communists. Their proof that communists were responsible was the presence at the site of a feeble-minded left-wing radical who had been brought there by the Nazis themselves. In 1939, when Hitler wanted a pretext to attack Poland, he had Germans dressed as Poles stage cross-border attacks on uh, German outposts. In some cases, a dead German convict dressed as a Pole would be left at the site. The next day, Hitler, referring to these border incidents, attacked Poland as a defensive necessity, thereby starting the European part of World War II. We Americans, of course, viewing our country as the exceptional nation, like to believe that our wars have never originated in such deceit. But an examination of the historical evidence reveals otherwise. For example, the Mexican-American War, with its false claim that Mexico had shed American blood on the American soil. The Spanish-American War, with its remember the main hoax. The war in the Philippines, with its false claim that the Filipinos had fired first and the Vietnam War with its Tonkin Gulf hoax. After World War II, moreover, the United States organized false flag attacks in European countries, such as Italy, France, and Belgium, to discredit communists and other leftists to prevent them from coming to power through the ballot box. NATO, guided by the CIA and the Pentagon, and working with right-wing organizations, organized terrorist attacks that killed many innocent civilians, and then, by having evidence planted, got the attacks blamed on leftists. Would the U.S. military do such a thing if it involved killing U.S. citizens? In 1962, shortly after Fidel Castro had overthrown the pro-American dictator Batista, the Joint Chiefs of Staff prepared a plan known as Operation Northwoods that contained pretexts which would provide justification for U.S. military intervention in Cuba. 
American citizens would have been killed in some of these scenarios, such as a remember the main incident in which we would blow up a U.S. ship in Guantanamo Bay and blame Cuba. Only President Kennedy's veto prevented this plan from becoming operational. Were the reasons why the Bush-Cheney administration and its Pentagon would have staged the 9-11 attacks to make them appear to have been orchestrated by Muslim terrorists from the Middle East. This administration, wanting to control the oil from the Caspian Sea area, had made plans to go to war in Afghanistan several months before 9-11. It also, as is now well known, had an attack on Iraq at the top of its agenda when it came into office. Finally, General Wesley Clark has revealed the Pentagon under this administration was planning on attacking six more uh, predominantly Muslim countries, Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Iran. Accordingly, the idea that 9-11 was an inside job with evidence planted to make it appear to be the work of Middle Eastern Muslims should not be ruled out a priori. Indeed, those with the responsibility to discover what really happened, including our major media, should have been alert for evidence that it was a false flag attack. For those with eyes to see, such evidence is abundant. I will give some examples. It is not difficult to see that the official account of the World Trade Center cannot be true. According to the official account, the Twin Towers came down because of the impact of the airplanes and the resulting fires. This is the account given by NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology. NIST is an agency of the Commerce Department and is thereby presently an agency of the Bush-Cheney administration. This administration is notorious for distorting science for political purposes as a document signed by several thousand scientists, including many Nobel laureates, has charged. Such distortion runs throughout the NIST report on the Twin Towers. NIST claims that explosives played no role in the destruction of the towers, but the evidence clearly suggests otherwise. First, steel frame high-rise buildings have never collapsed except when they have been brought down by explosives in the process known as controlled demolition. Therefore, the natural hypothesis, the scientific hypothesis, would have been that explosives were what brought the towers down. But NIST refused to consider this hypothesis. Second, at least 200 people, including over 100 members of the Fire Department of New York, reported evidence of explosions in the towers. For example, Fire Department Captain Dennis Tardillo said, I hear an explosion and I look up. It is as if the building is being imploded from the top floor down, one after another. Boom, boom, boom. Wall Street Journal John Bussey said, I looked out of the office window to see what seemed like perfectly synchronized explosions coming from each floor, one after the other, from top to bottom, with a fraction of a second between, the floors blew to pieces. I could fill this whole lecture with such testimonies, but NIST simply ignored them. Third, the towers did not merely collapse. They disintegrated. The top floors exploded. The explosions were so powerful that steel beams were thrown out four, 500 feet. Some of them were plastered onto neighboring buildings as you can see in videos such as 9-11 uh, Mysteries and Loose Change Final Cut.
Gravity pulls things straight down. Only very powerful explosives could have caused these horizontal ejections. Fourth, after these explosions, the towers came straight down at virtually freefall speed. This means that the bottom floors were offering no resistance to the material above them. And yet each tower had been supported by 287 steel columns, 240 columns around the periphery, and 47 massive steel columns in the core. For the building to come straight down, to have a symmetrical collapse, all 280 columns had to fail simultaneously. That's what explosives do in controlled implosions. It is not something that fire can do. Fifth, virtually all the concrete and everything else except the steel was pulverized into tiny particles. According to NIST, fire and gravitation were the only sources of energy beyond the impact of the airplanes. Fire and gravitation could not have caused such pulverization. What do experts say? Listen to the words of internationally known architect David A. Johnson. As a professional city planner in New York, I knew those buildings and their design, so I was well aware of the strength of the core with its steel columns. When I saw the rapid collapse of the towers, I knew that they could not come down the way they did without explosives and the severing of core columns at the base. The spewing of debris from the towers where the planes entered also could not have occurred simply with just a structural collapse. Moreover, the symmetrical collapse is strong evidence of controlled demolition. A building falling from asymmetrical structural failure would not collapse so neatly nor so rapidly. The official explanation doesn't hold water. Dr. Johnson, moreover, is simply one of some 200 architects and engineers who, by joining a new organization called Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, have publicly announced their rejection of the official story. What about Building 7 of the World Trade Center? The falsity of the official count of it is even more obvious. This building was not hit by a plane and had only a little external damage and fires on only a few floors, resulting, we are told, from debris from the collapse of the towers. And yet this 47-story building completely collapsed at 520 in about seven seconds. Explosions in the building were reported by several people, including two city officials. The collapse of this building exemplified all the standard features of controlled implosion. Any expert looking at the video can immediately tell what happened. In 2006, Danny Yowinkel, a demolition expert in the Netherlands, who had not known that Building 7 had collapsed on 9-11, was shown videos of the collapse. The interviewer, without telling him what it was, asked him what he saw. Yowinkel said, it starts from below. They have simply blown away columns. A team of experts did this. This is controlled demolition. When he was told that this building also collapsed on September 11th, he was incredulous, asking repeatedly, Are you sure? Are you sure? After Yowinko was finally convinced and had examined the evidence more extensively, he said, This is professional work, without any doubt. You're listening to Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's show, 9-11 and Nationalist Faith. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. 
architect Richard Gage, who founded Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, says that there is very clear evidence that all three World Trade Center high-rise buildings were destroyed not by fire, as our government says, but by controlled demolition with explosives. Once this is clear, the idea that the attacks were orchestrated and carried out by foreign terrorists becomes implausible. Foreign terrorists surely would not have had the courtesy to make sure the buildings came straight down rather than falling over so they would have destroyed dozens of other buildings in lower Manhattan. Also, foreign terrorists could have not gotten access to the buildings for all the hours needed to plant explosives. If one is wondering how homegrown terrorists could have gotten such access, a clue might be provided by the fact that Marvin Bush, the president's brother, was one of the principals of a company that handles security for the World Trade Center. But do we not know that Osama bin Laden was responsible for the attacks? Nothing is more basic to the official story. However, although Colin Powell, when he was Secretary of State, promised to provide proof of bin Laden's responsibility, this promise was quickly withdrawn and the proof was never provided. That, of course, was 2001. Surely by now, we would suppose, the FBI would have a massive amount of evidence of bin Laden's guilt. However, when one turns to the FBI's page on bin Laden as a most wanted terrorist, you will find that 9-11 is not listed as one of the terrorist attacks for which he is wanted. When Rex Toom, the FBI's chief of investigative publicity, was asked why not, he said, because the FBI has no hard evidence connecting bin Laden to 9-11. But surely, one might respond, even if there's no proof that bin Laden himself was involved, there were many kinds of evidence that the planes were hijacked by members of al-Qaeda. When this evidence is examined, however, it quickly dissolves. One proof provided was that the passports of some of the hijackers were found. A week after 9-11, the FBI reported that the passport of one of the hijackers who crashed the plane into the North Tower had been found in the street a few days earlier. We are supposed to believe, in other words, that after one of the airliners hit the tower, creating a fiery inferno, and after the tower exploded, pulverizing virtually everything into concrete and dust, one of the passports floated to the ground. This story was subjected to some ridicule in the press. It was later changed. According to the 9-11 Commission, a staff report, a passerby picked it up shortly before the World Trade Center towers collapsed. This version, according to which the passport had to escape only from the plane and then survive the fiery inferno, was evidently thought to be more plausible. Even more absurd was the claim that two passports of hijackers on United 93 were found at the crash site in Pennsylvania. At least it was supposed to be the crash site. Everyone who went there said there was no sign of a plane. The official explanation for this fact was that the hijacker pilot had flown the plane downward at 580 miles an hour when it hit the soft Pennsylvania soil it went completely into the ground so that not even the tail section was visible. Nevertheless, we are told 
the authorities found two of the hijackers' passports. Actually, you know, maybe this is believable because, you know, when we're flying along at 580 miles an hour, we often leave the window open and things fly out. (laughs) Given the implausibility of these claims, we cannot use the passports as evidence that there were hijackers on the planes. However, the main evidence for hijackers was phone calls from the planes in which passengers on the airliners reported that their planes had been hijacked. Many of these calls, especially from United 93, were believed to have been made on cell phones. Dina Burnett, for example, reported that she had received four phone calls from her husband, Tom Burnett. He had used his cell phone, she knew, because she recognized his number on her cell phone's caller ID. She reported this to reporters, on TV shows, and in a book. In 2006, however, at the trial of Zacharias Musawi, the so-called 20th hijacker, the FBI presented a report on phone calls from all the airliners. According to this report, there were only two cell phone calls from United 93, and one of these was from a passenger who called 911, and one was from a flight attendant. Both of these calls were reportedly made shortly before the plane crashed, when it was down to 5,000 feet. This is significant because most of the cell phone calls were reportedly made when the flight was at 30,000 or even 40,000 feet. And there had long been an ongoing debate about whether cell phones from airliners were possible at such high altitudes. Members of the 9-11 Truth Movement had said, no, they're not. So it is significant that when the FBI had to present testimony in a court of law, it did not claim that any high-altitude cell phone calls were made, whether from that flight or any of the others. In any case, the FBI report indicated that Dina Burnett did not receive any cell phone calls from her husband. What do we do about her statement that she saw his cell phone number on her caller ID. Must we say that she's lying? No. The probable answer, I have argued, is that she and the others were duped. The calls were faked. The technology of voice morphing had been sufficiently developed prior to 2001 to fool people's best friends, even their spouses. And there are devices that will fake other people's phone numbers as well as their voices. This conclusion that the calls were faked is strengthened by evidence from some of the reported conversations that show that they were not genuine. For example, when Mark Bingham's mother answered the phone, the caller said, Mom, this is Mark Bingham. (laughs) In any case, if the reported cell phone calls were faked, as the FBI report indicates they must have been, we must conclude that all the reported calls from the airliners were faked, including those from airphones. Once examined, all the other purported evidence for hijackers dissolves. This does not mean, to be sure, that the men charged with hijacking the planes did not exist. There really were men going by those names. But did they fit the official story's portrait of them as devout Muslims who being ready to meet their maker and collect their heavenly reward, had no reluctance to commit suicide. 
Let us look in particular at Mohammed Atta, said to have been the ringleader. According to the 9-11 Commission report, Atta had become very religious, even fanatically so. According to a letter that authorities claim was written by Atta, he said he planned to kill himself so that he could go to heaven as a martyr. But when we look at the actual behavior of Muhammad Atta, at least the man going by this name, we see something very different. Atta drank lots of alcohol, took cocaine, went to strip joints. He even lived with an exotic dancer for a couple months early in 2001. The government and the 9-11 Commission went to great lengths to cover up these facts, and for good reason. As a professor of Muslim studies said, it is incomprehensible that a person could drink and go to a strip bar one night, then kill themselves the next day in the name of Islam. Something here does not add up. What role did Ada and the others play in the operation? Were they hired to play this role? We will probably not know until there is a real investigation. We know enough, however, to say that the 9-11 attacks were not orchestrated or even assisted by devout Muslims. This conclusion is strengthened by some problems in the official story of the attack on the Pentagon. Although there are lots of these problems, I will here limit myself to two. According to the official story, the Pentagon was struck by American Flight 77 under the control of hijacker Hani Han Ewer. Numerous reports had indicated, however, that Han Ewer was a terrible pilot who could not even safely fly a single-engine airplane. As one flight instructor quoted by the New York Times put it, he could not fly at all. And yet the plane that hit the Pentagon, according to the official story, was flown with military precision. After completing a 333 downward spiral, it came in at ground level to hit the Pentagon between the first and the second floors and did this without even scratching the Pentagon lawn. The Washington Post wrote, aviation sources say the plane was flown with extraordinary skill, making it highly likely that a trained pilot was at the helm. Hani Hanjur, who could barely fly a Cessna, could not have done this in a Boeing 757. As Ralph Olmholt, a former 757 pilot, has said, the idea that an unskilled pilot could have flown this trajectory is simply too ridiculous to consider. If you check out Pilots for 9-11 Truth, you'll see that there are lots of other pilots who agree. The most well-known report about hijackers on planes came from Ted Olson, who was the Department of Justice Solicitor General. He told CNN on the afternoon of 9-11 that his wife, the well-known CNN commentator Barbara Olson, had called him twice from American Airlines Flight 77, the flight that reportedly hit the Pentagon, and told him that hijackers armed with knives and box cutters had taken over the plane. This claim played some vital roles. Besides telling the world that Flight 77 had been hijacked, it provided the only evidence that this plane was still aloft. It had disappeared from radar in the Midwest, and there were reports that an airliner in that area had crashed. So the reported calls from Barbara Olson provided evidence that the Pentagon really was, as the government claimed, struck by American Flight 77. However, Ted Olson's story 
is highly problematic. One problem was that he went back and forth on whether she had used a cell phone or uh, an onboard phone. He finally settled on the latter, thereby avoiding the problem of whether a cell phone call would have been possible. In 2006, however, an American airline representative in response to a query from a member of the 9-11 Truth Movement said, we do not have phones on our Boeing 757. The passengers on Flight 77 used their own personal cellular phones to make out calls during the terrorist attack. Ted Olson's claim was even further undermined by the report presented by the FBI at the Musawi trial. According to this report, the only call attempted by Barbara Olson was unconnected, and it lasted, therefore, zero seconds. This is an amazing development. The FBI is part of the Department of Justice, and yet it failed to support the claim by the former Solicitor General of this department to have received two phone calls from his wife on the morning of 9-11. In doing so, the FBI undermined the only evidence that Flight 77 was hijacked and flown back to Washington. There are lots of other problems in the official story about the Pentagon strike, but these two involving Hani Handur and Barbara Olson provide all we need to know to conclude that the story is not true. You're listening to Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's show, 9-11 and Nationalist Faith. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I've now discussed some of the evidence pointing to the conclusion that 9-11 was a false flag operation perpetrated by forces within our own government. There is far more evidence, as I've shown in my recent book, Debunking 9-11 Debunking. But what I have summarized here should be sufficient for those with eyes to see that the official story is at the very least deeply problematic. Not everyone, however, has eyes to see. Many Americans have a kind of faith that blinds them to the truth about 9-11. This faith also prevents this evidence from being discussed in the mainstream media. What is this faith? I'm drawing here from an essay unpublished at this time by Christian theologian John Cobb, pointing out that people generally presuppose the vision of reality of the society in which they grow up. He says, we may call this largely unconscious, underlying and overarching view of the world, as well as the more conscious beliefs in which it is expressed, a faith. For a thousand years prior to the Renaissance, Cobb adds, the faith of the great majority of Europeans was Christian. In the modern world, however, one's loyalty and one's identity came to be identified by geography rather than by religion. Virtue was redefined as patriotism. Saints were replaced by national heroes. Being a Christian became optional. Public debates for and against Christianity are fully acceptable but there is no public debate about national loyalty. In short, the dominant faith of most people in the modern world has been nationalist. What is the American form of this nationalistic faith? It is that the United States is a fundamentally virtuous nation. This faith does not mean that there can be no criticism of America's actions, 
But the criticism is only that the nation's actions are not in its true interests or do not accord with its true character. These criticisms hence express the nationalist faith, which is that our country is essentially good, never deliberately doing evil. From the point of view of this faith, the claim that 9-11 was an inside job simply cannot be true. After pointing out several facts that make the official story extremely implausible, Cobb says, the response of most Americans to a recitation of such facts shows how powerful is the hold upon them of their nationalistic faith. They do not want to hear that members of their government may have deceived them on a matter of such importance. They do not want to examine the evidence. They know in advance that the questioner is out of line. They know this because the alternative does not fit with their faith. This is the kind of faith that is blinding. But surely we may respond to John Cobb. Americans by now know that the Bush-Cheney administration lied us into the war in Iraq. Why would most Americans continue to accept this administration's astounding story about 9-11? The answer, Cobb suggests, may be that deception about matters of who has what weapons can be tolerated. We can understand that the real motives for fighting a war are often different from the announced reasons. But to believe that high officials and an American administration would organize a massive attack killing thousands of American citizens would deeply wound the American sense of the basic goodness of the nation, a conviction which belongs to the depths of our national faith. Given the pervasiveness of this faith in our country, and especially in the public sphere controlled by the mass media, it is easy to marginalize those of us who question the official story about 9-11. The chief method, other than simply ignoring us, involves the label conspiracy theorist. This label lets people know that we are irrational, that our claims are simply products of fevered minds, so that even examining our claims to refute them would be a waste of time. From a purely rational, empirical point of view, the effectiveness of this label is remarkable. A conspiracy, according to my dictionary, is simply an agreement to perform together an illegal, treacherous, or evil act. To hold a conspiracy theory about some event, accordingly, is simply to believe that it resulted from some such agreement. Well, we accept new conspiracy theories almost every day. Insofar as we believe news reports about cigarette companies conspiring to conceal the uh, dangers of smoking, oil companies conspiring to deny the reality of human-caused global warming, and corporations conspiring to defraud customers, we are all conspiracy theorists. Everyone is, in fact, a conspiracy theorist about 9-11 because the official theory is itself a conspiracy theory. It says that 9-11 resulted from a secret agreement between Osama bin Laden and various members of Al-Qaeda. Nevertheless, the term conspiracy theorist is used only for people who reject the official conspiracy theory in favor of the alternative conspiracy theory, according to which 9-11 was an inside job. For example, Jim Dwyer uh, wrote a New York Times story entitled Two U.S. reports seek to counter conspiracy theories about 9-11. A more accurate title would have been, 
two U.S. reports say government's conspiracy theory is better than alternative conspiracy theory. <laughs> but the Times would never have used any such headline. This one-sided use of the term does not occur only in the mainstream media. It is just as prevalent on the left. For example, Salim Muwakkal, a senior editor of In These Times, wrote in 2005, the 9-11 movement caught my attention when I saw Dr. David Ray Griffin speaking at the University of Wisconsin at Madison on C-SPAN earlier this year. Griffin has written several well-regarded books on religion and spirituality and is considered one of the nation's foremost theologians. I regard him as a wise writer on the role of spirituality in society. So it was shocking to see him pushing a radical conspiracy theory about 9-11 on C-SPAN. What could have transformed this sober, reflective scholar into a conspiracy theorist? <laughs> I, of course, had been a conspiracy theorist all along. The only thing that changed was that in, in 2003, uh, I rejected the official conspiracy theory in favor of the alternative one. From the point of in these times, however, that was when I first became a conspiracy theorist, leading the magazine to ask, what happened to Griffin? Another writer for the magazine, Terry Allen, answered, I think part of it is that he's a theologian who operates on faith. My own answer, that I finally looked at the evidence, was evidently ruled out a priori, because there could be no good evidence for a conspiracy theory. These two writers seemed also completely innocent of the fact that they rejected my conspiracy theory on the basis of faith, faith in the national myth. These two examples, in any case, show how the term conspiracy theory is used in this discussion. It is not used in the generic sense to mean any secret agreement to do something illegal. It is used for a theory alleging that our own government did something not only illegal, but so terrible as to contradict our faith in our nation's basic goodness. The fact that such theories are not to be seriously entertained in public discourse was made clear by President Bush in his address to the United Nations two months after 9-11. He said, Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories concerning the attacks of September the 11th. Malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists. What would an outrageous conspiracy theory be? If we were operating in a philosophy of science context, the answer would be clear. A good theory is a theory that can account for all the uh, relevant evidence in a coherent way. A bad theory is one that is contradicted by some of the relevant evidence. An outrageous theory would be one that is contradicted by virtually all the relevant evidence. From that standard, it's clear that the official theory about 9-11 is the outrageous conspiracy theory. But the public discussion of 9-11 does not occur in a philosophy of science context. It occurs in a political context. And in this context, the alternative theory is the outrageous one by definition because it says members of the Bush administration ordered it not Osama bin Laden. Evidence has nothing to do with what is outrageous.
In warning people not to tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories, Bush was reminding people, especially people who control the mainstream media, that anyone saying that 9-11 was an inside job was not to be given a sympathetic or even a neutral hearing. This injunction has been obeyed. Since I know my own case the best, I will use my own work as an example. Although I have published five books about 9-11, not one of them has been reviewed by a mainstream newspaper or magazine, even though my first book, The New Pearl Harbor, has sold some 150,000 copies in English and has been translated into several other languages. Before I started writing on this topic, I was considered a fairly well-respected philosopher of religion and theologian. I had written over 20 books. One would think that the fact that such a person was now writing books accusing the Bush administration of orchestrating the 9-11 attacks would be just the thing that newspapers and magazines would headline in order to increase sales. But contrary to widespread opinion, there is something more important than sales, never publicly contradicting our nationalistic faith. I did, to be sure, appear once on a national talk show on television, that of Tucker Carlson. But this was not a normal interview in which I was allowed to present my ideas in a sympathetic or even neutral atmosphere. Rather, Tucker quickly denounced me, even calling me sinful, sinful thereby perfectly illustrating that his faith in American goodness is a religious faith. To violate it is a sin. I've been interviewed calmly on television shows in Canada and several European countries, even England, but never in this country. In the public sphere where our national faith rules, the alternative conspiracy theory is not to be tolerated. You're listening to Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's show, 9-11 and Nationalist Faith. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. In the church hour, things are surely different. Here, one would presume the dominant faith would be Christian faith. And Christian faith at its best would allow people to look at the evidence that 9-11 was an inside job. Why? Christian faith is, first of all, faith in God. And faith is best understood as fidelity or loyalty. The Greek term for faith in the New Testament, pistis, is often best translated fidelity. The issue, as Richard Horsley explains in Jesus and Empire, is whether one was loyal to God or to the Roman emperor. In speaking of God, one is speaking of the creator and lover of all people. Christian faith also teaches that God is truth and that to be loyal to God is to be committed to knowing and proclaiming the truth, whatever it be. From the point of view of Christian faith, therefore, it would be idolatrous to regard our nation as worthy of ultimate allegiance. Christians can, of course, be patriots, loving and serving their country, but they cannot, without forsaking their Christian faith, give ultimate loyalty to their nation so as to blind themselves or hide from others ugly truths about this nation. Another relevant feature of Christian faith is this doctrine of original sin. Although this doctrine has often been expressed in mythological, sometimes horrible ways, its basic point is that the tendency to sin is universal. 
No party, no religion, no country can be assumed to be free from the tendency to sin. What is this tendency? On the one hand, our unique capacities as human beings allow us, unlike other creatures, to transcend our own perspective, to realize that we are simply one creature among others. All people are children of God. Hence, all people should have equal rights, equal opportunities, including equal access to the world's resources. We know that we should love our neighbors as ourselves, and hence do unto others as we would have them do unto us. We can even know, as the Dalai Lama puts it, that we should care more for others than we care for ourselves. There are so many more of them. (laughs) And yet, we generally do not. We generally use our unique capacities, as Reinhold Niebuhr pointed out, not to regard ourselves simply as one among other equals, but to gain advantages for ourselves and those to whom we are close, even when this means harming, perhaps killing, others. This tendency becomes especially prevalent in people who gain political power. This point was expressed most famously in Lord Acton's dictum, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Christians should, therefore, be especially suspicious of political and military leaders who show signs of seeking absolute power. Andrew Basevich, a Christian who is a political science professor and a former military officer, has said that the U.S. military has been attempting to achieve something approaching omnipotence. The attempt by the Bush-Cheney administration to achieve virtually absolute power is well known by now. Christians should suspect, therefore, the presence of absolute corruption, corruption sufficient, at least, to orchestrate 9-11. Unfortunately, the fact that Christians in America think of themselves as Christians does not mean that their Christian faith trumps their American faith. They often seem to take the latter with greater seriousness. I've never had a lecture in a church canceled because someone took exception to my Christology or my doctrine of God. But more than one church has canceled lectures I was scheduled to give about 9-11, and many more churches have refused even to schedule such lectures in the first place. The leaders of those churches were unwilling to expose their people to such heresy I have, to be sure, spoken in a few churches, and I've been supported by a few theologians, such as John Cobb, Rosemary Ruther, Joe Huff, the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York, and the late William Sloan Coffin. But I've been attacked by others. The Institute for Religion and Democracy put out a press release headed, IRD, Presbyterian published 9-11 conspiracy book is absurd. The IRD's Mark Tooley said that senior mainline church officials would publish this kind of absurd revisionist history is a scandal. Especially severe criticism came from conservative factions within the Presbyterian Church. John H. Adams, the editor of the Presbyterian Layman, said that it is not the Presbyterian Church's place to publish a conspiracy theory and that for Westminster John Knox to do so is tantamount to saying the denomination agrees that 9-11 was engineered by forces within our own government. 
Although Adams admitted that he had not actually read the book, he felt free to describe the book's thesis as a harebrained idea and to criticize the press for moving into the pulp category of theology. James Berkeley, the director of Presbyterian Action for Faith and Freedom, called Westminster's decision to publish my book laughable, pathetic, and kooky, and said that the book damaged the image of Presbyterians. Such attacks led Davis Perkins, the president and publisher of Westminster John Knox, to issue a defense. This defense said, in his preface to the controversial Christian faith and the truth behind 9-11, David Ray Griffin writes, one of our main tasks as theologians is to deal with the current events in light of the fact that our first allegiance must be to God, who created and loves all people, indeed all forms of life. If we believe that our political and military leaders are acting on the basis of policies that are diametrically opposed to divine purposes, it is incumbent upon us to say so. At Westminster John Knox Press, we share Griffin's primary allegiance and seek to encourage sustained, informed, and respectful dialogue about the most pressing issues of our times. Professor Griffin's thorough research and intellectually rigorous arguments have persuaded us that this book should have a place in that conversation, regardless of the conclusions readers come to accept. Perkins thereby said that for Westminster John Knox Press, Allegiance to God must take priority over our allegiance to political and military leaders and our national image. But the Presbyterian Publishing Corporation's Board of Directors, in face of mounting criticism from within the denomination, would not support Perkins. In an official statement, Kenneth Godshall, the chair of this Board of Directors, said, David Ray Griffin is a distinguished theologian who has published a number of books with the Presbyterian Publishing Corporation. This particular volume is not up to Westminster John Knox editorial standards and not representative of the Presbyterian Publishing Corporation publishing program. What was wrong with my book? The book makes the extraordinary claim that the terrorist attacks on September 11th were orchestrated by the federal government and made to appear to be the work of al-Qaeda. Griffin's theological reflections are helpful and timely. The board believes the conspiracy theory is spurious and based on questionable research. So the reason this book is not up to Westminster John Knox editorial standards has nothing to do with its theology. The fact that Godshall made no effort to determine the truth of his allegation suggests that the real reason for censoring my book was to placate members of his denomination who had objected to Westminster John Knox's publication of my book solely because of its violation of their religious faith in American goodness. Godshall, moreover, did not merely censor my book and Westminster John Knox for publishing it. The two men at the press who made the decision to publish it were soon to depart. According to the story in the Louisville Courier-Journal, Godshall had said no one would be disciplined for approving the book and the board would continue to defend the editorial independence of the corporation. In fact, however, Godshall began micromanaging so that Davis Perkins, 
who was already very angry at Godshall for apologizing for the publication of the book and saying it did not live up to standards, got fed up and took another job when it came along. One week later, Jack Keller, the vice president for publications, was fired. What is the message in all this? While Jack Keller was vice president for publication at Westminster, it had published several books by me. One of them, God, Power, and Evil, rejects the traditional doctrine of omnipotence. It even specifically criticizes this doctrine as held by John Calvin, of course, the founding theologian of the Presbyterian tradition. Another book of mine denies that God can interrupt the world's normal causal processes, which means there can be no miracles as traditionally understood and no infallibly inspired scriptures. But no one was fired for publishing these books. No one screamed that by publishing these books, Westminster John Knox Press was saying that this is what the Presbyterian Church USA believes. So what is the message to church presses? It is that they can publish books that are highly critical of traditional Christian doctrines without losing their jobs. But they better not publish anything that challenges the idea that America is fundamentally good, the exceptional nation, because this is one religious belief that dare not be challenged. Do we not here have a clear illustration of the fact that all too often Christian faith is less important to Christians in America than their American faith. The evidence that 9-11 was an inside job, I have argued, is overwhelming to anyone with eyes to see. And Christian faith at its best serves to open people's eyes to this evidence. When Christian faith is subordinated to faith in American goodness, however, it becomes a blinding faith, producing Christians with eyes wide shut. In working so long to expose the truth about 9-11, one of my central hopes is that this exposure will lead American Christians to repent of this idolatrous subordination. And once Christians see 9-11 for what it was, a pretext to extend the American empire in predominantly Muslim countries, I hope they will realize that to be loyal to Jesus, who preached an anti-imperial gospel, they will need to oppose American imperialism as they have opposed previous types of imperialism. Our country needs, our world needs, our leadership in exposing the truth about 9-11. Let's do it. been listening to a presentation by Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's show has been 9-11 and Nationalist Faith. David Ray Griffin, Emeritus Professor of Philosophy of Religion and Theology at the Claremont School of Theology, has published over 30 books and 150 articles. He has written seven books on the subject of 9-11, including his latest, The New Pearl Harbor Revisited. He is currently writing a book on the new NIST report. Dr. Griffin's books on 9-11 are available at www.911truth.org. That's the numbers 911truth.org. 
DVDs of 9-11 and Nationalist Faith, including graphics and question and answer session, are available at www.911tv.org. That's the numbers 911, the letters tv.org. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To order copies of shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace. Give thanks.